Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And this episode is presented as a tribute to the millions of Irish dreamers and doers who left the Emerald Isle to come to this country and who have made incredible contributions to our nation's heritage over the past 400 years. For a period of nearly 300 years, beginning in the early 1600s, hundreds of thousands of Irish were sold as slaves to planters in the West Indies. Millions more were starved out after the crops were destroyed in an effort to rid the kingdom of Irish Catholics, and the lucky ones who could escape to the new land of freedom called America did so, only to face a whole new set of trials. The Irish have become a proud part of the American fabric, and on March 17th of every year, on St. Patrick's Day, we celebrate that. Every year on March 17th, our family, when the kids were younger, would don our green in the morning, head for work or school, celebrate St. Patty's Day with corned beef and cabbage at dinner, then retire to the living room to watch our taped version of The Luck of the Irish, not the Disney movie, but the original 1948 version starring Tyrone Power as Stephen Fitzgerald, a newspaper reporter from New York who, after accidentally ditching his car in a creek in the Irish countryside, stumbles upon a quirky little guy in green who gives him directions to the nearest inn, where he meets a beautiful young woman played by Ann Baxter, and her father, who, for a few sips of whiskey, and then a few more, fills the reporter in on local legends, including that of the quirky little local leprechaun, clothed in green, who occasionally leaves milk at the front door in return for a pint of whiskey. It's a great movie, full of twists and turns, usually prompted by a little Irish magic. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The story of 15-year-old Annie Moore, the story of St. Patrick's Day, and the story of the Irish in America. If only we had a leprechaun here to help with writing and production. When the gates of Ellis Island first opened on January 1, 1892, Annie Moore, age 15, from Ireland, was the first person to cross the threshold. This moment in history was memorialized in the song Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, written by Brendan Graham with heart-rendering lyrics that told the story of not just Annie, but of millions of Irish that emigrated to America since the first days of colonization. In the song, Annie takes that first big step into what she hoped would be a new world of opportunity, much different than the isle she left behind. Here are the lyrics which I first heard performed by the Irish tenors featuring Ronan Tynan as the lead vocal. On the first day of January, 1892, they opened Ellis Island and they let the people through. And the first to cross the threshold of the Isle of Hope and Tears was Annie Moore from Ireland, who was all of 15 years. Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears, Isle of Freedom, Isle of Fears, but it's not the Isle you left behind. That Isle of Hunger, Isle of Pain, Isle you'll never see again, but the Isle of Home is always on your mind. In her little bag she carried all her past and history, and her dreams for the future in the land of liberty. And courage is the passport when your old world disappears, because there's no future in the past when you're 15 years. When they closed down Ellis Island in 1943, 17 million people had come there for sanctuary. And in the springtime when I came here and stepped onto its piers, I thought of how it must have been when you're only 15 years. Anna Annie Moore was born January 1, 1877, in County Cork, Ireland, and she traveled to New York aboard the steamship Nevada with her two brothers Anthony and Philip, who had just turned 15 and 12, respectively. They had left Queenstown on December 20, 1891, three of 148 passengers in steerage, as the first person to be processed at the newly opened facility of Ellis Island. 
she was presented with an American $10 gold piece from an American official, which is the current equivalent of about $202. From 1820 to 1920, more than 4 million people left their native shores of Ireland, bound for the port of New York and a new life in America. The trio would spend 12 days at sea, including Christmas Day, arriving in New York on Thursday evening, December 31. They were processed through Ellis Island the following morning, New Year's Day. All three children reunited with their parents, who were already living in New York. The headline in the New York Times, dated January 2, 1892, read, Landed on Ellis Island, new immigration buildings opened yesterday. A rosy-cheeked Irish girl, the first registered. Room enough for all arrivals. Only railroad people find fault. New York, January 2, 1892, the article continues in the New York Times. The new buildings on Ellis Island, constructed for the use of Immigration Bureau, were yesterday formally occupied by the officials of that department. The employees reported at an early hour, and each was shown to his place by the superintendent or his chief clerk. Colonel Weber was on the island at 8 o'clock and went on a tour of inspection to see that everything was in readiness for the reception of the first boatload of immigrants. There were three big steamships in the harbor waiting to land their passengers, and there was much anxiety among the newcomers to be the first landed at the new station. The honor was reserved for a little rosy-cheeked Irish girl. She was Annie Moore, 15 years of age, lately a resident of County Cork, and yesterday one of the 148 steerage passengers landed from the Guion steamship Nevada. Her name is now distinguished by being the first registered in the book of the new landing bureau. That steamship that brought Annie Moore arrived late Thursday night. Early yesterday morning, the passengers of that vessel were placed on board the immigrant transfer boat John E. Moore. The craft was gaily decorated with bunting and ranged alongside the wharf on Ellis Island amid a clang of bells and a din of shrieking whistles. As soon as the gangplank was run ashore, Annie tripped across it and was hurried into the big building that almost covers the entire island. By a prearranged plan, she was escorted to a registry desk, which was temporarily occupied by Mr. Charles M. Henley, the former private secretary of Secretary Wyndham. He asked as a special favor the privilege of registering the first immigrant, and Colonel Weber granted the request. When the little voyager had been registered, Colonel Weber presented her with a $10 gold piece and made a short address of congratulation and welcome. It was the first United States coin she had ever seen and the largest sum of money she had ever possessed. She says she will never part with it, but will always keep it as a pleasant memento of the occasion. She was accompanied by her two younger brothers. The trio came to join their parents who live at 32 Monroe Street, this city. We continue. Her parents, Matthew and Julian Moore, had come to the United States in 1888 and were living at Monroe Street in Manhattan. Late in 1895, she went to St. James Church and there married Joseph Augustus Scheer, a young German-American who worked at the Fulton Fish Market. She gave birth to at least 10 children before dying of heart failure at age 50 in 1924. Her grave in Calvary Cemetery in Queens is marked with a Celtic cross made of limestone imported from Ireland. She spent her entire life on New York's Lower East Side. Today, Annie Moore is honored by two statues sculpted by Jean Reinhardt, one at Cobb Heritage Center, formerly Queenstown, her port of departure, and the other at Ellis Island, her port of arrival. Her image will forever represent the millions who passed through Ellis Island in pursuit of the American dream. The first real waves of Irish immigrants to the U.S. began long before Annie's arrival. Although she was the first registered immigrant to America, the first Irish arrived in small numbers almost since the first colonization, and numbers slowly increased until they became waves of thousands around 1750. Most were Catholics who were being displaced in Ireland by Protestants who controlled most of Ireland, its laws, 
and its access to society, making it difficult for Catholics to prosper. Many were doomed to poverty and oppression. Those Protestants that did not belong to the upper echelons of the caste system were also leaving for greener territories. Many poor Irish were sold as slaves to plantation owners in the West Indies and the Americas, a fact that hasn't been widely published. And no, these were not indentured servants with eventual rights to freedom. The first recorded sale of Irish slaves was to a settlement in the Amazon in 1612, seven years before the first American slaves arrived in Jamestown. The proclamation of 1625 by James II made it official policy that all Irish political prisoners be transported to the West Indies and sold to English planters. Soon, Irish slaves were the majority of slaves in the English colonies. John Martin of Global Research, in his article, The Irish Slave Trade, writes, In 1629, a large group of Irish men and women were sent to Guiana, and by 1632, Irish were the main slaves sold to Antigua and Montserrat in the West Indies. By 1637, a census showed that 69% of the total population of Montserrat were Irish slaves, which records show was a cause of concern to the English planters. But there were not enough political prisoners to supply the demand, so every petty infraction carried a sentence of transporting, and slaver gangs combed the countrysides to kidnap enough people to fill out their quotas. The slavers were so full of zest that they sometimes grabbed non-Irishmen. On March 25, 1659, a petition was received in London claiming that 72 Englishmen were wrongly sold as slaves in Barbados, along with 200 Frenchmen and 7,000 to 8,000 Scots. So many Irish slaves were sent to Barbados, between 12,000 and 60,000, that the term Barbadosed began to be used. You've been Barbadosed. By the 1630s, Ireland was the primary source of the English slave trade, and then it got worse for the Irish. After Oliver Cromwell defeated the Royalists in the English Civil War, he turned to Ireland, who had allied themselves with the defeated Royalists. What happened next could be considered genocide. The famine, caused by the English intentionally destroying food stocks, and plague that followed Cromwell's massacres reduced the population of Ireland to around 40% of what it was. And then Cromwell got really nasty. Everyone implicated in the rebellion had their land confiscated and was sold into slavery in the West Indies. Even Catholic landowners who hadn't taken part of the rebellion had their land confiscated. Catholicism was outlawed and Catholic priests were executed when found. To top it off, he ordered the ethnic cleansing of Ireland east of Shannon in 1652. Soldiers were encouraged to kill any Irish who refused to relocate. Instead of trying to describe the horror, consider the words from the English state papers in 1742. In clearing the ground for the adventurers and soldiers, the English capitalists of that day, to be transported to Barbados and the English plantations in America, it was a measure beneficial to Ireland, which was thus relieved of a population that might trouble the planters. It was a benefit to the people removed, which might thus be made English and Christians. A great benefit to the West India sugar planters, who desired men and boys for their bondsmen, and women and Irish girls to solace them. As for the Irish slaves, Cromwell specifically targeted Irish children. During the 1650s, over 100,000 Irish children between the ages of 10 and 14 were taken from their parents and sold as slaves in the West Indies, Virginia, and New England. In this decade, 52,000 Irish, mostly women and children, were sold to Barbados and Virginia. Another 30,000 Irish men and women were also transported and sold to the highest bidder. In 1656, Oliver Cromwell ordered that 2,000 Irish children be taken to Jamaica and sold as slaves to the English settlers. For some reason, history likes to call these Irish slaves indentured servants, as if they were somehow considered better than African slaves. 
This can be considered an attempt at whitewashing the history of the Irish slave trade. There does exist indentured servitude where two parties sign a contract for a limited amount of time. This is not what happened to the Irish from 1625 onward. They were sold as slaves, pure and simple. Since Catholic immigration to the Americas was forbidden by law in most of the colonies until after the War of Independence, small numbers of them, many from the counties of Cork and Kinsale, made it to America's shores after 1680, settling in Virginia and Maryland. Some Irish Protestants, generally a little better off, arrived in New England as artisans, shopkeepers, or young professionals, and some worked in the Irish linen trade. These early waves of Irish immigration were often in response to economic peaks and troughs. A famine in the early 1740s saw renewed interest in Atlantic passage, and Irish emigration never really subsided afterwards. In 1771 to 1773, more than 100 ships left the Ulster ports of Newry, Derry, Belfast, Portrush, and Larne, carrying some 32,000 Irish immigrants to America. Meanwhile, a similar number set sail from Dublin, Cork, and Waterford alone. Some of these would certainly have been Catholics. By 1790, the USA's Irish immigrant population numbered 447,000 and two-thirds originated from Ulster. Back in Ireland, the population had grown from only 2.3 million at mid-century to as much as 5 million by 1800. The vast majority lived in poverty. In the U.S., as the seeds of revolution began to be sowed, it was the Irish who rebelled against English authority and often took the lead in urging the colonists to dissent and then fight. Score a big one there for the Irish. In the hundred years between 1815 and 1914, nearly eight million Irish descended upon the shores of America. Many were poverty-stricken and lacked vital skills, and they found themselves competing against blacks and Asians for jobs and respect, which seemed a never-ending quest. The year 1847 marked the failure of the potato harvest in Ireland, and the potato had been the staple of survival in their already poverty-stricken existence in Ireland's underclass, about 80% of the Irish who left their homes during this period were aged 18 to 30. When they arrived by ships in the port cities of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Savannah, and New Orleans, they were met with signs saying, no mix allowed, and no Irish need apply, and jobs and lodging were nearly impossible to find, so they banded together in tenement slums and toughed it out. The women turned to servitude working as housekeepers for the wealthy. There were no welfare checks, no human services, no WIC cards, and no health care. They worked, starved, or tried another city. Many fled to wealthy Boston, and in one year Boston's Irish population jumped from 30,000 to 100,000. But the Irish in Boston, now collecting in South Boston, were considered a servant race. Boston's elite began their flight to Beacon Hill to escape the influx. The Irish were dealing with a new breed of bigotry and racism based on the fact, simply, that they were Irish and, for the most part, Catholic. The Irish were also categorized as angry, alcoholic beings, ready to drink, fornicate, or fight at the drop of a hat. The term, don't get your Irish up, stemmed from a stereotypical belief in the volatile Irish temper. They were called mix on the make. Their families were seen as clannish. They bred like rabbits, and the Irish were entirely figured to be a stupid servant race by the Bostonians and most of Native America. These images were portrayed in the Daily Boston and New York newspapers, photographs, and other media of the time. It was a tough time to be Irish in America. But they persisted. Many in the cities who were becoming successful helped each other up the ladder, 
taking important roles in politics and in business. They became policemen, firefighters, shipfitters, seamstresses, shop owners, shoemakers, and restaurateurs. Due to their Irish pride, they rarely asked for a handout, only a hand up and a chance to prove themselves. Others began to migrate west, working on the railroads, joining the army, digging the ditches, homesteading free land on the prairies, building bridges, and taking any and all unskilled labor they could find. The Irish Brigade earned fame and respect during the Civil War at Gettysburg, Shiloh, Antietam, and Fredericksburg, and a dozen other major battles. Almost half the U.S. cavalry was comprised of Irish, serving for $40 a month while earning reputations as top-notch Indian fighters. More than one American president was a proud descendant of Ireland. Many worked on cattle drives, supplying the growing cities on the East Coast with beef, while others laid track, dug tunnels through mountains side by side with blacks and Chinese, and worked in the mines, and always while keeping the dream alive that America offered more opportunity than any other country in the world. And with them they brought their traditions and their rich heritage, including the legend of St. Patrick. Much of what is known about St. Patrick comes from the Declaration, which was allegedly written by Patrick himself. It is believed that he was born in Roman Britain in the fourth century into a wealthy Romano-British family. His father was a deacon and his grandfather was a priest in the Christian church. According to the Declaration, at the age of 16, he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and taken as a slave to Gaelic Ireland, which was pagan and ruled by warlords. It says that he spent six years there working as a shepherd and that during this time he found God. The Declaration says that God told Patrick to flee to the coast where a ship would be waiting to take him home. After making his way home, Patrick went on to become a priest. According to tradition, Patrick returned to Ireland to convert the pagan Irish to Christianity. The Declaration says that he spent many years evangelizing in the northern half of Ireland and converted thousands. He would use the three-leaved shamrock to illustrate the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Tradition holds that he died on 17th of March and was buried at Downpatrick. Over the following centuries, many legends grew up around Patrick, and he became Ireland's foremost saint. It would take hours to read all the names of the Irish who have made significant contributions to American life in arts, politics, science, sports, just about any category you choose. But many of us will be lifting a pint of Guinness on the 17th in tribute to the Irish. Throughout the rest of the year, we can and do offer our tribute to all the others who have contributed to the American fabric, many of whom came to America bearing all kinds of hardships. But one day a year, Irish, is yours. We hope you enjoyed Annie Moore's Irish Legacy, and we invite you to join us for more episodes of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We really appreciate reviews, which you can access by going to iTunes. While you're on iTunes, click the magnifying glass at the lower right, search 1001 Heroes. That'll bring you to a page. On the bottom half of that page, you'll see our logo box. And click on the logo box, and that'll take you to a page that offers reviews. So not that hard to do once you get used to it. We sure do appreciate your listening to us, and we appreciate your reviews very much. Thank you very much for joining us with this show. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.